0: Someone to be around you, someone to sit down and pour you shochu. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Hello and welcome to the Japan Distilled podcast. I'm your host Stephen Lyman. I'm here today in Kagoshima with a very special guest, Mr. Paul Clark, the editor-in-chief of Imbibe Magazine. Welcome to the show, Paul.
1: It's great to be on the podcast, and it's great to be in Kagoshima.
0: Very glad that you could make the trip. And uh, I believe this is your first time in Kyushu, is that right?
1: That's absolutely correct.
0: Not your first time in Japan. What? When would that have been?
1: Uh, my first time in Japan was probably about 10 years ago, uh, and I was not at all in this part of the country, but I was doing um, spirits explorations. But this time, it's kind of really cool to be back here checking out the great world of shochu.
0: Great. Uh, it's been a pleasure showing you around. We're at the tail end of a a trip around Kyushu, we visited, uh, I believe, six shochu distilleries and three prefectures out of the seven. So not a bad start. Hopefully only your first of many journeys down here to the land of shochu. Of
1: Yeah, it's been really exciting to be down here for a few days, and as you said, visiting a number of different distilleries, visiting a part of the country I've never really seen before, and kind of seeing how the two go together, how the parts of the country, how these different towns and rural areas kind of translate themselves through shochu at these distilleries that we've been seeing.
0: And I think that you've just described exactly what made me fall in love with Kyushu when I started coming down here. I realized as I was preparing for this interview that I first came to Kyushu in 2012, so pretty much 11 years ago almost to the day. And I have now spent more than half my life since then in Kyushu. So it's, it was a life-changing journey for me. And a big part of that was seeing how shochu is so integrated into the local culture and what a big difference that makes in the experience of the drink
1: absolutely and i think that's true for so many spirits that we talk about nowadays i mean obviously we go down our own personal rabbit holes into things like mezcal or things like armagnac or things that really kind of speak to their area the the places where they're from and it's been really interesting to see how shochu reflects this particular area but also how this area reflects itself through shochu and the different approaches to making it and enjoying it
0: we started this trip up in fukuoka where i live and uh we went to a sake brewery, which might not be where you expect to find shochu, but they were making sake lee's shochu, the Takahashi Shoten Distillery, well sake brewery and distillery in Yame, Fukuoka, very well regarded for high quality sake production. And then they make some beautiful sake lee's shochu or kasatori shochu. How was that experience? As your first shochu distillery, a little unusual compared to what you've seen since, but I'd like to get your impressions about that.
1: Well, I mean, in a way, it made made perfect sense because before you can get the distillation, you have to have fermentation. And by going to a sake brewery, it was a way to really see a place that emphasizes that and really where that is, you know, the big part of the focus. Uh, And then after understanding those kinds of principles of fermentation, especially koji fermentation, which is totally new to me to see it in action and to see how different people take different approaches to it over the the past few days, uh, starting at the sake brewery made perfect sense.
0: Yeah. And that was uh, the first time I've taken anybody there as a, as a guest. And that was a lot of fun. They really gave us a deep tour, much deeper than, than I had, uh, experienced before. And they were even pressing sake while we were there, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool to see and, uh, to get to taste it right out of the press.
1: Yeah, that was really cool. Um, you know, it, it was my first time to be at a sake brewery of that kind of scale. And, uh, to taste the the sake coming right off the press, it gave me a lot of insight into the kinds of things that this brewery is capable of, which of course carried through into the shochu that they were making.
0: That's right. And I think what really struck all of us as we were tasting that sake, you still have active and living yeast and koji as it's coming out of the press like that. And so it had this effervescence. It was, It just felt still alive, I think. Would you say so?
1: Yeah, it still felt exactly what you said, very vibrant. You know, uh, we could see you just turn your head a few inches to the right and you could see the sake being pressed at the time and then, you know, coming off and tasting it just a few minutes after it's come off. It felt like so vibrant and still very alive with the yeast, with the cultures in there.
0: Yeah, it really was special. And I had never had that opportunity either. That was uh, very cool to do. And right next to that was the spent lees from the previous day's press. And we were able to taste those. And that's actually what goes into the shochu that they make. They do it in one of many ways that you can make sake lee's shochu. They simply rehydrate their lees and let it ferment for a little bit longer. And then they distill, they don't add any fresh koji or any of that sort of thing. Still, they end up making just a really, really beautiful expression.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that was fascinating about that is, you know, especially when I'm exploring a spirit category that's unfamiliar to me, uh, it always helps to kind of look for other kinds of comparisons or other parallels that you see in the spirits world and where I was seeing the, this stack of spent sake leaves and they were about to uh, go back into the process, you know, find some of the fermentable sugars and translate through into something totally different, but that still had that very clear relationship to that original product, the original sake. Uh, I was looking around thinking, you know, it's not dissimilar from something like grappa where, you know, you'll have wine grapes that are pressed. You have the wine that's still fresh and vibrant and alive, but you still have something there that you can work with and make it into something that's also quite beautiful and quite distinct.
0: It really is this opportunity to make use of waste in a way that makes something new and something else that that people can enjoy. And typically, sake, lees, shochu is sold just locally around the community because they can't make a lot of it. There's about 8% residual alcohol in the lees, and so you can't use it as fertilizer. It's going to be harmful to the plant roots. But once you distill, you can use those lees for fertilizer. So it really becomes almost this cycle of life in the race to sake, to shochu, to growing rice again process
1: it plays a really functional role in that way but it's also really interesting to see how these different products emerging from the same source uh, have that relationship but are also standing on their own as truly separate uh distinct kinds of expressions
0: that's right and the shigemasu daiginjo shochu is vacuum distilled and so it manages to capture all those almost ephemeral aromas uh that beautiful daiginjo sake has which I think is pretty unique. A lot of sake lee shochu that I've had is quite pedestrian. It really tastes like a lot like rice shochu, vacuum distilled rice shochu. But in this case, you really picture those beautiful aromas, which I thought was fascinating.
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the things we were talking a minute ago about tasting the sake fresh off the press, and the thing that caught my attention about it is the really high floral, fruity notes that were active in that sake and how it made it such a beautiful expression. And to see the kind of appreciation and expectation for those notes carry over into the shochu production, where recognizing that you have something really beautiful here, how can we coax that more out of the spent lees and translate that through into the shochu? It was Really fascinating to kind of see how that approach came and, you know, a very intentional approach to using the soggy leaves and getting those kinds of flavors.
0: Interestingly, at that brewery distillery, I would say about 95% of their production floor is dedicated to sake production. And then you go through a little back door, through a very, very narrow hall into another building, which is their distillery, because they're separate licenses, they have to be in separate spaces. And the distillery was, what, maybe four or five aging tanks, a couple fermentation tanks and the still. And that that's all that was there.
1: You know, you you use what you need, I guess. Yeah.
0: That's right. It reminded me of some of the micro distilleries that I've seen in the States, like micro craft distilleries that they don't need a lot of space. There's just, a you know, especially if you're making something like a gin that you can, you can package up and sell pretty quickly. You don't. You don't need a lot of floor space.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, d- distillation is all about taking something uh, that that has a lot of mass and reducing it, and really capturing those best qualities. You know, capturing the the flavors, the essences, and the alcohol that come out of it. So distillation, you know, in a way, doesn't have to have a huge footprint, especially if you have this facility that's already doing the hard work of the fermentation.
0: That's right. That's right. And so that was uh, our visit to Asakili's distillery in fukuoka and then we went down to hitoyoshi in kumamoto which is the home of kuma shochu the wto geographical indication for rice shochu made with rice from the region and water from the underground springs of the kuma river which is one of the fastest running rivers in japan and we started out at takahashi shuzo which should not be mistaken with takahashi shoten where they make shigemasu sake but takahashi shuzo which is the largest rice shochu producer what did you think of the scale of that production?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we saw a range of different producers over the course of the past few days. It's really fascinating to see big producers and the approach that they take to making spirits sometimes. Uh, I think we sometimes get it into our heads as, as people who love craft spirits, who love, you know, very kind of creative, bespoke spirits, that big is bad. But large producers have really got it down sometimes, the process of, of making great products. Uh, and so visiting this distillery was fascinating It's to see how does a company take uh, their approach to this and preserve the flavors and the characters of the rice all the way through and carry that through into their finished product on a large scale.
0: That's right. And they really are the largest rice shochu producer. They make more than half of all rice shochu in Japan is made at their two distilleries there in Hitoyoshi. And yet they managed to make some really elegant products. Again, using a lot of vacuum distillation, but they do play around with atmospheric as well. They do some blending. So uh, really, I think, uh, forerunners in how to do these kinds of things at scale. So from Takahashi, we went to the smallest shochu maker in Kumamoto Prefecture, and that's Jufuku. What was your first impression when you saw that distillery?
1: They really put the cottage in cottage operation. It was cool to get off the bus and and to check out this house, really, uh, with the bottles that they had available, with the kinds of uh, tanks and the kinds of pots that they had that were maturing shochu, and the very literally hands-on process that they were taking to make, making shochu. As compared to the larger distillery that we saw earlier in the day, It was a fascinating kind of juxtaposition between the two to see, you know, this very large, almost industrialized kind of process versus a a very hands-on process and to see the different ways that they can kind of diverge but still make great product.
0: Jufuku is certainly one of of my favorite distilleries and I've become close to the family over the years. And they really do everything with such consideration and time and at very small scale. So they're never going to be able to to, to ramp up to where someone like Takahashi is, but it's been said to me before by, by makers that the big makers need the small makers and the small makers need the big makers and that they all really are one ecosystem mm-hmm. that without the uh, innovation of the big makers and the really the advertising dollars that they can bring to the category. The small makers might not survive, but it, the small makers who are man- maintaining the tradition and doing, doing things by hand and and carrying on things that have been done this way for hundreds of years.
1: Absolutely, and I think also you know the small makers contribute the sense of story a lot of times, uh, as you mentioned with the, with this distillery. It's a family that, that, that's making it, and families resonate. Uh, so. I think these smaller scale producers they bring that kind of creativity they they bring that kind of tradition and the storyline and as you said the larger producers help kind of magnify that while also sharing their own products.
0: Interestingly, Jufuku Distillery actually, for is still run actually by Kinuko Jufuku, who was one of the first female toji in modern Japanese shochu and especially in the in the Kuma shochu world. And she, even though today she's in her 70s, she's still just a force of nature. I think she makes an extreme impression on everyone that comes across her and she really will speak her mind to just about anyone.
1: I think this is where it came back to, you know, kind of seeing the way that the communities are involved in making shochu, and the way that the shochu and the and the families that make it interact in that community. So, absolutely, she's definitely a force of nature. I got that from from visiting the distillery, and it was it was really cool to kind of see how that placed that maker in that town.
0: That's right, and her son uh, Ryota, is now the master brewer distiller, the Toji and he has his own presence. He's quite a, a striking and large human who works in a very small space to make pretty incredible rice shochu. Uh, I got sidetracked into a, a conversation in another room with uh, his mother while you got the grand tour and spent quite a bit of time on the distillery floor. So I'd be curious to get your impressions about his process and what he's doing.
1: One of the fascinating things that he talked about was he really went down the road of talking about Koji with us and explaining their particular approach to to making koji to uh, inoculating the rice and going through the process all the way to the finished shochu. So seeing their small operation, I mean, some of the, some of the tools were literally buckets, uh, in which they're making, they're washing the rice and making the shochu. Uh, so seeing that kind of scale and having somebody who has, you know, again, that literal hands-on, you know, talking about having your hands buried in the rice, uh, as part of the process is was. Fascinating to see kind of the personal insight, and here's some of the personal experiences of the things that go well, the things that haven't gone well, and you know just kind of the the day to day of making it and focusing on every aspect of making great quality shochu.
0: Yeah, really a special experience, and I'm glad you got to to visit Jufuku with us. That evening, uh, we actually went out to dinner with Diota and one of his uh, distillery crew, and they gave us a pretty much, I think, a master class on how to serve rice shochu, wouldn't you say?
1: You know, I think being in the restaurant with, with them and, and the shochu, and they they showed up prepared. Uh, they knew they knew what they were going to do, what they are going to show us. And yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I'll come on a research trip uh, like this one, and I've read things or I've seen things on the internet, uh, and it's one thing to kind of experience it from, you know, somebody telling me about it or, or demonstrating something. It's totally different when you go into a bar or a restaurant and have somebody just throw it down the way that they usually do it. And you say this is how it works. I get it now. It's not just, you know, we're not just doing this because it's the way we've always done it. You see why they do it and why it makes so much sense to prepare and to serve shochu the way that they do.
0: That's right. They were playing around with hot water, cold water, heating the shochu directly. They brought in uh, maiwadi, which is a shochu that's been uh, diluted a few days before. And I think Ryota told us he usually, he likes to, dilute about three or four days before. He knew we were coming, so he he was preparing. And uh, all of those different components, those dilution components, really changed the character of just one single shochu brand
1: exactly I mean there, I remember one point during the evening where two cups came around and you could taste two identical preparations largely identical preparations of the same drink from two different people and you know each of them just did prepare the drink in their own way that they usually do it but to taste the difference when the ingredients were literally the same and the same kinds of proportions it was it was fascinating so uh to have them come in and to show this and and to have us taste it and just hang out uh it really gave this kind of particular insight into shochu and the drinking of it
0: yeah that was that was even eye-opening for me as much time as i've spent uh in these kinds of environments and the preparations were actually by one of the distillery staff and uh our friend pablo who it turns out the two of them actually live quite close to each other and their children go to school together. And so, they'd known each other it was the first time they'd had a chance to drink together and they, kind of, they did an Oyuwadi off. They, they each prepared a hot water service and then the cups were passed around the room and everybody could vote if they preferred Endos or Pablo's. And uh, it was pretty evenly split around the room who liked which. So, it's really, if, did you like a stronger preparation? Not even, I think they used the same dilution. Mm-hmm. The stronger preparation was just the one expressed uh, almost more sharpness.
1: From my understanding, the different approaches were one of them preheated the glass uh, and then added the shochu at a different rate than the other one who just poured it in, poured the ingredients together. Uh, so it's weird to think about it in some way because in in a way it doesn't make sense. But when you taste the glasses side by side and they're so noticeably different, then there's got to be something going on.
0: That's right. The uh, heated glass and the slow uh, mixture actually created a much rounder, softer mouthfeel for the Oyuwari shochu. So that was a lot of fun. The next morning, we were up in Adam pretty early to go to Toyonaga Distillery, another rice shochu maker. actually in the eastern end of the Kuma River Valley near the the head of the river and they make uh, traditional rice shochu as well. But before we get into talking about Toyonaga and your experience there, how did you feel that morning after drinking rice shochu all evening?
1: I mean, it, it, I felt I felt pretty bright, you know, um, even though we've been out for a while and drinking rice, rice shochu. I think the fascinating thing about it is when he'd shown up and when we were doing the service the night before, the dilution level continued to increase. So the drinks got weaker and weaker as you went along, but you didn't really notice because uh, you still had the flavors. You still had the aromatics. Uh, but the end result was you were able to get up and walk out of the restaurant, walk back to your hotel and everything was fine. And in the morning, you're know, waking up without a hangover, just, you know, getting the onsen for a few minutes, you know, kind of uh, sweat, out, sweat out, whatever you have and you're ready to go.
0: That's right. I think they started us at about a fourteen percent dilution, and by the end of the evening, we were down around four or five percent glass. So it was a, it was a very soft, gentle landing for us, rather than uh, heavier glasses and bringing out the the undiluted stuff and and and, and getting us hammered. So we appreciate that uh, from them. It was some nice hospitality. As I mentioned, the next day we end up at Toyonaga Distillery. This is a larger operation, obviously, than Jufuku, but I think still on that end of the spectrum. They're they're relatively small although probably what 5 or 10 times the floor space of of uh, jufuku uh, what what was your impression of of toyonaga and your experience there
1: well the thing that really struck me about this distillery is, you know, we showed up in the morning, it was really foggy uh, and we spent a lot of time outside just looking at the rice fields. And first off the rice fields being immediately adjacent to the distillery. That's cool. Um, Especially for some of the shochu that they're making is coming directly from that rice and really kind of paying attention to that part of the process, but also hearing their approach to, uh, cultivating their rice and uh, paying attention to the environment and paying attention to the the cultivation uh, and really kind of following every step in the process to make sure that not only is the rice tasty for making good shochu, but that the land is healthy and that that's all going to kind of work together. So that kind of relationship, that kind of focus. And then, yeah, it was their, their focus on detail uh, and, and details along those similar kinds of lines uh, that show the kind of craft and care that they were taking in their approach to it.
0: That's right. They do cultivate their own uh, rice. I think they have five different fields that they use for a brand called Jigaden, which really means it's almost like I do this myself, self-reliance, but also appreciation for the fact that nature helped. So it's a really beautiful name for that shochu. And they make that from their own rice, which is organic. And then they chose a rice variety that's local to the region, but also one that's hardy. Because they wanted to respect the work that the land was doing and not lose it to typhoon or to disease or anything else. And then once they make that shochu, they really don't do anything to it. It's really respect for the product itself, which again, I think reflects the respect for nature.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, you know, putting a lot of the the faith into the process, starting with the agriculture and carrying through to the to the koji fermentation, carrying through to the distillation and then leaving it alone. You know, letting it rest, letting it kind of, you know, collect its head uh, after it's been distilled, as it were. Uh, But then not messing with it after that, you know, just letting the shochu show you what it's going to be.
0: And it was pretty cloudy in the bottle, which you wouldn't expect from a distilled spirit that hasn't been aged in I don't know what you'd have to age it in to get clouds, but (laughs) plenty of uh, leftover uh, fatty acids and amino acids in that class for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that we encounter with shochu that you don't really see in other spirits to to such a degree is by doing that single pot distillation uh, and by using the koji fermentation as part of it, you're having a lot of those fats uh, and those oils coming over into the distillate. And on a cool morning, you may see some cloudiness in the spirit, but, you know, every
0: little piece of cloud every little drop is a little memory about to be made that's right that's right and and when we came out of the distiller mentioned that it was it was foggy and misty when we got there it had all cleared it was a nice bright sunny day and we could see that there were mountains all around us and we were there in the in the valley with the the fields and from there we uh headed over the mountains actually into the kirishima mountains into kagoshima uh the home of sweet potato shochu and we visited uh the jikuyo distillery which is uh run by Maiko Jikuya, another female company president. But her distillery is on quite a bit larger scale than even Toyonaga.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was larger scale, but it was also for us, you know, it was kind of an introduction to sweet potatoes uh, coming, coming into shochu, which for me personally was fascinating because I love those kinds of shochus. And to see the process that they were employing in it uh, was just really fascinating to get into.
0: Maiko's shochu really reflect her she has made these soft, elegant, beautiful shochu, as opposed to kind of the, the rough traditional, as, as we would say in Japanese, imokusai style. And consumers have responded to that with quite a bit of enthusiasm. And she does a lot of expressing all of that through what kind of potato she's using.
1: Yeah, I think one of the cool things about this distillery and the shochus that she's making is it demonstrates that there's this room for creative expression and creative exploration uh, within shochu, especially once she's working with the sweet potatoes. So you have you know different varieties you can use, uh, also working with different kinds of koji coming into that. So just looking at the different variables that, that you have, the different options that a producer uh, has available to them and how that translates through into this range of expressions coming from a single distillery.
0: And she really is is known for that and does a, does a great job with her shochu. We then took you to our favorite shochu izakaya in downtown Kagoshima City, Yokoban, which is a self-service shochu izakaya. You pour your own drinks, however you want them. And uh, you met Reina, who uh, is a force of nature as well.
1: <laughs> it was awesome. Reina's place is awesome. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a fantastic night.
0: Of course, we didn't let you go home because you're now in Kagoshima City, which has more shochu bars per capita than anywhere in the world. And we went first to SKE, which is a shochu serving you uh, shochu in really, really, really nice glassware. Uh, And then on to Roku, which is a a Kagoshima shochu bar that has a lot of specialist information.
1: It was really cool to see both of those bars for a couple of different reasons. First off, uh, you know, the first bar going into it in the evening, it had such an elegance to it in in terms of the presentation uh, with the glassware coming out. And it kind of was a good balance for the more rustic elements that you run into in shochu. And then we'd seen in just the last, you know, 24 or 48 hours. So it really was kind of painting the wider picture, painting a more colorful picture of the way that shochu can be explored and enjoyed. And then, yeah, the the final bar of the night, uh, it was, you know, that was a deep dive. Uh, Let's go deep dive, especially the educational presentation on the back wall uh, going fully into the region and the distilleries and everything that the distillers are doing in that area
0: that's right and that bar is run by Maya Ailey who has been on our live stream before we have not yet had her on Japan distilled but it's probably time to do that and she did give us a very good education she took us to the back showed us the map of where all the distilleries are located talked about the different regions and then we tried quite a few different expressions it was a it was a nice end of the evening again up and at them early we went down actually this morning to Chiran Jozo, uh, which is the makers of Chiran Tea Chu, a sweet potato shochu with uh, green tea in the fermentation. And that, again, was another experience that uh, I'm sure was was new to, to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was mind-blowing. I mean, it, you know, again, it was seeing the sweet potato shochu being made, but the green tea factoring into it, uh, you know, you don't see that every day.
0: Not at all. In fact, they were the innovators. They started seven years ago making Chidan Tchu. It's now won all sorts of awards. It's really gained traction both in Japan and abroad. And it turns out that the distillery is actually part of a tea cooperative. And uh, Mister Mori, who who runs the distillery, he's actually a tea farmer in in the off season, which I hadn't realized. So he's making tea for part of the year, and then he's making shochu the rest of the year. So that's that's a, that's a pretty busy guy.
1: Absolutely, and to see you know not only the the shochu made with the tea in it, but also the entire approach to shochu. Again, you know, exploring the different op- opportunities that exist with different types of sweet potatoes, different approaches to fermentation with koji. Uh, it was really cool to see the range of expressions and some really great shochu that that he's making there.
0: That's right, and unfortunately, uh, both for Jikuya and for Chiran, is the blight which has been affecting the uh, sweet potato harvests over the last few years, and this year is no exception. And so there's been a lot of discussion about what to do. And I, I think maybe from your perspective as somebody who knows a lot about a lot, of, a lot of different spirits category, you've seen something analogous in any other traditions.
1: Well, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, we're working with an agricultural base here and with sweet potatoes, that's, that's going to be an issue if you have a blight looking at agave, uh, you know, agave, there's always a question about the monoculture that goes on within, within tequila. What's the possibility of some sort of disease or blight uh, should strike that crop. And it's something that, you know, grape growers, you know, we, we go all the way back to phylloxera in the late uh, uh, 1800s, which devastated the French wine industry as well, as well as the, the brandy industry. So um, it's, I mean, it's kind of a reminder that agriculture and ag- agricultural decisions play a role, especially now with climate change is yet another thing we need to deal with. Um, it's something that's you know unfortunate that it's plaguing these producers and, and affecting the shochu that's coming out. But, uh, you know, we're all hopeful that there's some kind of response, some kind of uh, resolution to be found.
0: Yep. And it really is a, a challenge for the the producers. And we do wish them well and hope that everything is OK. Well, this has been a great discussion. Unfortunately, we have to cut it short because you and I need to get down to Shochu Street. We were actually recording on Shochu Day, International Shochu Day, and day one of the large Shochu Festival in Tenmonkan started a few minutes ago, and we need to get down there. But thank you so much for being on the show, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks so much, and happy Shochu Day.
0: (laughs) That's right. And thank you all very much for listening to the Japan Distilled Podcast. This is Stephen Lyman, and we'll be back in your feed soon. Kanpai! Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Paul Clark, the editor-in-chief of Imbibe magazine. It was a pleasure to have him on the show. If you have not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast, wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others find the show. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. Please check out our website, japandistilled.com for the show notes on this and every episode. And of course, please don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled.